Paracast, with your hosts Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. David, do you remember the movie Pleasantville? The movie with um, Tobey Maguire and that beautiful colorization, black and white stuff. And Oh, yeah, yeah, that's a great movie. Okay, it paints the 1950s as this black and white world. And right. strangely enough, the UFO field is kind of like Pleasantville and the way it's changed. Like in the 1950s, the people who were around looking after these things suggested that it was all spaceships or not, you know, and that was it. That was the two alternatives they confronted. Right. They're from Mars. That was the deal. And then we had the crazies, okay? The crazies were the contactees who said they met the Martians, they met the Venusians. Right. Simple. Yeah, well, hold on, but Betty and Barney Hill aren't part of those crazies, right? No, that's the 1960s. Right. Okay. Right. Okay. Just want to clear the, that up. Uh, okay, no. In the 1960s, things got complicated, okay? Yeah. And it started in the 50s with the men in black stories, got crazy in the 60s. In the late 60s, some people, myself included, started theorizing that UFOs were really from other dimensions, okay? Really? Yeah. You were saying that in the back of the 60s? Yes. Wow. A person named Alan Greenfield and myself actually wrote stuff about it in the late 1960s. We were very young. Okay, I don't want to pretend I'm older than I am, but we were very, very young. And we were writing about the stuff. Other people picked it up. We had John Keel, who started talking about ultra-terrestrials. In short, the UFO field got very complicated. We had the early abduction cases, etc., etc. Today, well, yeah. today, sometimes you don't know what to make of it. It's like it's worse than the movie Pleasantville, where Pleasantville became colorized by the end of the film. Yeah, they lost their innocence. That's right. Well, our innocence uh, is gone and left us a long time ago, and it just gets worse and worse. And some things in the UFO field today are so complicated, you can't keep up with it. It's just insane. And separating the fact from the fiction and the stuff in the middle is very, very difficult. And one of the things, as you know, we're trying to do on the show is trying to understand what's going on and maybe get past a little bit of the fiction and that's not easy well there's just so many weird stories gene like what we're going to talk about tonight very oh, weird very weird indeed this is the serpo case which is one of the stories project serpo and i'll give you a very brief summary because i've started reading about the subject and i read about it because somebody in our message boards at thepowercast.com suggested I read the material at abovetopsecret.com. Now, Above Top Secret has 248 separate message board pages devoted to the subject, and that's only part of it. The problem is that each of those pages, if you print them out, they're long pages. They're five or ten pages. So we're talking about 1,500 or 2,000 message board pages just devoted to Project Serpo, and that's the stuff the general public can retrieve. You see, AboveTopSecret.com is a strange beast because you have three tiers of access. One is the public message boards. If you post a lot, you get a tier two, I gather, which is, I don't know, like Close Encounters of the first or second kind. This is the second kind where you get to see more information. If you pay for access... And I'm not going to quote the prices. If you pay for access, you get the higher tier where you get the really cool stuff. And that doesn't make any sense to me because I think if the information is that important for people to know, we shouldn't charge for its access in that way unless you want to publish a book or something. I don't know. 
Well, they've got to recoup bandwidth costs. I mean, you know, actually, I'm a big believer in the notion of tiered access, so I don't necessarily have a problem with that. And the other thing is that above top secret, it's probably realistic to say they're the most important forum for this kind of discussion in the world. Uh, our Paracast forums are very cool, and a lot of people have really um, been participating lately. But at the same time, Above Top Secret is where you really go to find out what eh, sort of the underground world thinks about this stuff. So I'd be curious to see the, their, their postings about Serpo. I, mean, I read 150 printed pages of this stuff. Really? The equivalent okay. of 150 printed pages. I will tell you, ladies and gentlemen, I am probably more confused now than I was before because a lot of the problems with message boards is that they vary all over the place. They're anecdotal. There's a lot of chatter, plus and minus, pro, con, etc., etc., and finding a center, a factual center, can sometimes be difficult. It raises some questions, and we hope that some of these questions will be answered during the show. But if you can build that many pages on a subject that really only came to light last year. <laughs> but the second part of what we're going to be talking about, and the first part and the second part, will be with Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy of Project Camelot, which is, <laughs> as the name implies, a roundtable a roundtable where they discuss a lot of unusual things. They do a lot of interviews with people. One of the interviews is even more interesting because this interview talks about the late inventor Otis T. Carr. Who was Otis T. Carr? Hmm. Otis T. Carr was somebody who I would call a fringe character in the 1950s. Okay? He claimed to be developing this flying craft, all right, a mm -hmm. flying craft, and that this would basically <laughs> be some sort of, I don't know, free energy or something. Sounds familiar. Sounds like a Nikola Tesla kind of rumor, and supposedly mm -hmm. Otis T. Carr worked with Nikola Tesla. He had a lot of coverage in the 50s, but the people in the serious part of the UFO field, remember, were dealing with the Pleasantville era, where there was the serious and the crockpot factions of UFO research. And the people in the serious faction said, oh, no, this guy is a lunatic. Ignore him. Long John Nebel, the premier radio talk show host of history in presenting these subjects on the air, he gave Otis C. Carr, I guess, fair treatment. And sometimes mm -hmm. he would really rip people apart, but he gave him fair treatment. But in the end, Otis T. Carr disappeared from the public view around 1961 or so. Okay, so Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy are not going to just be talking about what's happening with Project Serpo, what it's all about, the background, and maybe give us some information about it and the latest developments. But we're going to hear about someone named Ralph Ring, who worked with Otis T. Carr decades ago. And we're going to find out just what happened. Was this just a fringe character or something more? And I don't know what to say, except it's all coming up on the Paracast. In Kansas anymore. You are about to enter another dimension. A dimension not only of sight and sound, but of mind. A journey into a sinister land of secret rites, passwords, initiations, and handshakes, where the truth remains hidden and history is controlled by an elite group of mysterious men. Imagine, if you will, that I'm holding a book in my hands that explains this secret history and that the name of this book is Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. Here is described centuries of dark dealing, lies, murder, mayhem, and cover-ups in the pursuit of unimaginable money and power. My name is Brad Steiger, and the stories you are about to read may have actually happened 
at the signpost up ahead. Your next stop, Conspiracies and Secret Societies, The Complete Dossier. This is the Paracast, with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. You never know what's going to happen next. So, Bill, you and Carrie Cassidy have a venture called ProjectCamelot.org, and we know it has nothing to do with King Arthur, but we wanted to know what it's all about and how you got started with it. Well, actually, it has a small amount to do with King Arthur, and there's okay. a little story behind that, because okay. we came up with the idea when uh, Kerry and I were visiting a beautiful ancient place called Tintagel, which is in Cornwall in England. It's a kind of mystical place where you could easily imagine Camelot might have existed and where legend has it that King Arthur did have his round table. And it was a very idealistic venture. It came out of the idea of Mr. X and maybe many others like him, having originally contacted us through Project Serpo with an incredible story. We thought as an idealistic venture, supposing there were many more of, of his kind out there, what would it take to create a safe place where people could contact us, they could sit around the round table, so to speak, everyone would be equals, and we could start to get this information out for the benefit of all. It was purely idealistic, and it started off just as a little bit of fun because we were in a kind of romantic vacation mood. And after we talked about it for a couple of hours on a long car journey, we realized this is something that doesn't exist. At the um, sure, there are plenty of websites which are focused on getting stories out, but we wanted to combine it with a place where people could sign up to a pledge that says we're not going to be bowed and cowed by the powers that be. We are going to speak up. We're not going to be anonymous. We are going to use our realms. We are going to say, make a solid statement to the effect that uh, I think this actually was inspired by Phil Schneider quite a few years ago who said, if, I, if it ever is claimed that I have committed suicide, then know that this is not true. I will have been murdered. And of course, presciently, this is exactly what happened to him. And so, in a small way, he was our inspiration also. Uh, whether or not his story has merit or not, he clearly felt he was being a very brave man and something very peculiarly peculiar happened to him at the end of his life. It's just like, life shouldn't be like that. We should be able to tell the truth. We should be able to speak up. And the more we thought about it, the more we realized that there was a unifying factor here between the UFO communities, the free energy communities, the anti-gravity research communities, people like John Hutchison working way up in Canada with the Hutchison Effect, you know all about that kind of stuff. Um, and alternative medicine for many years has been, there's a whole trail of bodies and attacks and deaths and mysterious suicides uh, among those people who claim to have invented or developed cures for cancer, for example. And the common factor here is that the powers that be do not want their vested interest challenged for one reason or another. And so it's very much an acorn at the moment. We hope it will, will develop into a big tree. But the idea is to develop a rolling snowball of support for the principle that we should all be able to speak out. And that's the idea of the round table. And so that's a very long answer to a simple question. <laughs> Nothing is simple in this life. We're talking to Bill Ryan and Harry Cassidy on the Paracast, and they have a site called ProjectCamelot.org, and you raised the issue that, of course, you got started with something called Project Serpo, 
And I know some of our listeners know exactly what that is, and a lot of new information has come out. But we have to also be fair to a lot of you out there who don't know what we're talking about. So can you give us a background of Project Serpo? How did you find out about this? How did you get involved? Okay, this is right. This is a really, it's a very weird story. The Project Serpo story is weird, and its weirdness, I think, is one of the reasons why there are literally tens, if not hundreds of thousands of people all over the world who are following this story with a very great deal of interest, and it's also aroused a great deal of controversy. The elevator speech version of this is that it was released by an anonymous source back in November of last year that a claim that in 1965, 12 American astronauts went on a journey in an alien spacecraft as guests of our alien visitors to uh, a planet called Serpo, which is one of the planets of Zeta Reticuli, and that will be a commonly understood name among many of your listeners. Some 40 light years away, they stayed for 13 years as guests of the aliens and then came back. And the project apparently also goes under the name of Project Crystal Knight. No proof has emerged. There are all kinds of claims. It's very controversial. There's a lot of evidence of all kinds of shenanigans going on behind the scenes. I have my own ideas about it. Anyone who you talk to about it who's been following the story has their own ideas. And I got involved completely accidentally. And just to bridge back into the previous little overview of Project Camelot. Once I had set up the Serpo website with a contact form by which people could contact me um, anonymously or otherwise if they wished, back in December, uh, among literally thousands of other messages, I had a message from somebody who said they had an extraordinary story to tell. And this was the guy who we have referenced on the Project Camelot website as a Mr. X. We know his full name, we've met him, we know, know him very well. And he was an archivist who, back in the 1980s, working for a defense contractor for six months, had hands-on contact with government documents, films, photographs, alien artifacts, for goodness sake. He's very detailed and very exact in what he says that he saw. And, of course, he was very curious about this stuff. He's a smart guy. And as he was filing all this stuff, he was reading the material. And he started out small, and then he started to say more and more as he realized that I was not going to run him into the FBI. And that also became uh, an inspiration for Project Camelot. So that's really the bridge over between the two. Now, it strikes me as something that I think a skeptic's going to ask, and that is, gee, this sounds like the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind. What's going on here? <laughs> yes, that's right. This is a parallel which a lot of people have noticed, that at the end of that movie, um, and ironically, I haven't seen it for a very long time, although a lot of people have written to me with all the references. At the very end of the movie, the hero who's played by... Uh, Dreyfus, Richard Dreyfus. Um, the alien ship lands, um, and there are 12 American astronauts beside himself who are preparing to take this journey to another planet. You can count them. There are 12 of them, including two women, which is one of the Serpo claims. And this is one of the um, debating points about whether this was a coincidence, whether the Serpo story was fabricated to mirror the Close Encounters story, or was in some way inspired by that, um, or maybe triggered by that, or whether uh, at that time Spielberg uh, had advanced notice of something that was going on behind the scenes, which of course is something that many people have suggested with reference to the movie E.T. 
Well, you know, officially at least, the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was inspired by the book of the same name by the late Dr. J. Allen Hynek, who, of course, makes a very brief three-second cameo in the movie. Yes. Something of great interest, by the way, that I would just like to mention is that we have been contacted by uh, by um, Alan Hynek's personal secretary um, wearing our Camelot hats. She got in touch with us and she's told us a lot of very interesting experience of her last uh, year, during which time she spent a lot of time working with Hynek before, uh, before he died. And we plan to interview her and she has a lot of interesting stories to tell nothing earth shattering I mean I mean, it's like she hasn't seen you know um, any alien bodies or anything extraordinary like that but uh, she does add a very very interesting and human face uh, to the man who we've come to know is rather a pragmatic careful methodical character apparently he was far more esoteric and a much more spiritual man than he was willing to disclose in his in his public face and that's something that we're going to that we're going to publish probably in a month or two's time okay that's a small example of the kind of thing we're doing you've entered another dimension you've entered the paracast I'm going to tell you a story about that in a minute, Webb. Actually, might have some resemblance to what you're talking about, something very close, and you'll hear about in a moment. But I have to tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg. We're talking to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy. They run something called ProjectCamelot.org. And we're starting off with how the site was organized, but also the background with regard to the Project Serpo episode and whether or not the movie Close Encounters of the Third Kind was influenced by it. Ask your Dr. Heine. Nick, in his final years, I met him several times and everything, okay? I interviewed him. I actually introduced him to the late author Charles Berlitz, who wrote the book on the Bermuda Triangle. I knew Berlitz very well in those days, and Berlitz was a really cool old man with a twinkle in his eyes, had a lot of fun. I took my wife out to see him once. We went out to his home in Oyster Bay, I believe, Glen Cove, Glen Cove, New York, and he lived in this huge, sprawling seafront house, and Berlitz had this office that was a converted ship's cabin. Anyway, back to Dr. Hynek. I interviewed Dr. Hynek a few times, and I got the impression that his beliefs with regard to UFOs and related subjects were expanding tremendously beyond the basic, they're from outer space and all that stuff. There's a lot more complexities involved, and he had come to understand that, but he never really pursued it, unfortunately. That's exactly what we've been given to understand by his personal assistant. Right. Yeah, exactly what we've been So I'll confirm that right up, up and down the track here. That is definitely the case because I got that very impression. Of course, we're talking about conversations that happened in the late 1970s or so, but definitely something that was very important. David, I'm sure you're very curious about all this. You've studied this thing a lot more than I have in the past week, and I bet you've read every word three or four times. So maybe you can ask a few questions as we try to understand 
Project Serpo. Well, there's a tremendous amount of stuff on the site that Bill has organized, and uh, it's been a really fascinating read. There are certain things that sort of strike me as, as a bit odd, Bill, and, and I want to start by asking, in your discussions, you, you've referenced this Mr. X character, and uh, I watched the videos where you guys interview him. I guess I'll just come right out and ask it. What methodology are you are you using to determine whether or not he's being honest about what he's told you about his interaction with these documents? Uh, to be perfectly honest, I find it a little hard to imagine that this archivist has literally been given bags of stuff to sort through, that none of this material was presented to him in a way that it looked like anybody had organized it ahead of time. It was just like thrown at him. Here, go through these bags of stuff and sort it out. Uh, something, you know, material of this nature, if genuine, it's a little hard to believe that it would be handled in that way. What are your thoughts about that and it, yeah. Mr. X's uh, testimony? It's an extraordinary story. The first thing that... Um I'd like to say about that as a background is that is that he wants to come out. He's nervous. He's getting more confident because he hasn't had you know any visits from the Men in Black and he hasn't had any white vans parked outside his 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 house and stuff. And he has regularly sought our advice about what he should and shouldn't do. And um, for example, the way that we introduced him to Jerry Pippin was we operated as um, as a message relay, and we would be very happy to do this with yourself as well. What I think he would require is if there's a way in your post-interview editing, you would be able to disguise his voice like he did for the Jerry Pippin show, but otherwise I know, well, I'm pretty sure that he would be very happy to answer your questions directly. And so, so answering them indirectly, I have no idea how it was that this strange situation came about, because he had a secret clearance. He didn't have a top-secret clearance, but he was definitely handling top-secret documents. Now, he wasn't supposed to be reading them, but of course he did whenever they were not in a sealed envelope. We met with Dr. Robert and Ryan Wood, who are very well-respected documents researchers. They run the website majesticdocuments.com, and um, Ryan Wood, I think, has just got a book out which which has been very well received. We met with them uh, all together for several hours. The, um, the whole conversation was audio taped by them. They plied him with all kinds of detailed questions. Um, Mr. X was not able to answer all of them, which, of course, isn't, you know, and I think it would have been extraordinary if he had been able to. But they were very satisfied with his honesty. Um, they planned to make a statement about this. Um, there are stumbling blocks in the way from the point of view of rigorous verification because of course he hasn't come forward with his passport and social security number to show who he was and he hasn't <laughs> he hasn't released publicly the name of the contractor who he was working for for reasons which I, I understand because apparently he was threatened in no uncertain terms he was threatened with treason and hanging and all sorts of stuff and considering that He's really been quite a brave man. Now, I would put my entire reputation on the line to say that this guy is genuine, but for diehard skeptics, say, okay, you know, show us his employment records, um, show us his social security number, show us um, any kind of um, written agreement that he made with his company that he's still got in his filing cabinet. We don't have any anything like that. And in as much as we're just the sort of introduction agency to the world, if you like. We're sufficiently comfortable that this guy has an important story to tell and should be taken very seriously. We're very happy to introduce him to anybody, including yourselves, with his agreement, and then you can ply him with your own detailed questions. And I mm -hmm. think really that's the best we can do. 
Sure. Um, this is Carrie Cassidy. Hi, how are you? Hi there, Hi, Carrie. Um, I just wanted to put in a little bit um, on the side of, of Mr. X because, you know, I've met him and spent a lot of time with him and his wife. He, he's actually incredibly genuine. Um, it's, it's actually, he's almost um, naive in the sense of the deeper picture. Um, and yet he's been given quite a bit of information because of what he, you know, the job he did. Um, he was an avid UFO um, sort of follower way back when, um, when he was, before he ever got this assignment. When he got the assignment, he had no idea what he would be doing. Um, you can imagine, you know, his actual joy. He was working in a vault, seating, seated by himself, um, opening, you know, huge mailbags full of materials, and he was—he was kind of a glorified file clerk, if you will. Um, the bags were locked. They had—he was heavily guarded. Um, you know, his breaks were mo everything was monitored, if you understand. And he never shared anything. He's, um, you know, he's a loyal American. He's, he was quite young at the time. He's still not that old. Um, and um, he's incredi incredibly genuine. Um, and, and, and he's quite knowledgeable at this point. So this brings me to some questions about Serpo specifically. One of the things that we talk about on the show quite a bit Bill and Carrie is motivation and trying to understand the sort of the behind the scenes motivation for how and why things happen. So, in discussing Serpo, we have this situation where 12 humans are sent to another planet, and uh, correct me if I'm wrong, one of these aliens remained here on Earth. Is that correct? That's how the story goes. It seems that it wasn't a one to one exchange, um, that the one alien who apparently was was exchanged for the Twelve, was the being who, in the so-called literature, is known as E.B. 2. And um, he, he was here um, from 1985, I think, through until the 1980s, from memory. I, I can't quite remember. And why the, the Americans sent so many and why the aliens um, uh, left so few, just one, is something which I don't understand. There are a myriad of questions here that that are just tantalizing and which we just don't right. have a handle on to be able to answer them with any certainty. I guess what comes up in my mind, Bill, is that uh, I wonder if I was an alien civilization and I had been experimenting or, or exploring this planet, what would be my motivation to cut a deal with the humans to allow 12 of them to come back to my planet? This is what I'm having a little bit of a hard time yeah. getting my brain around. What? was their motivation and and then of course it might seem like an obvious question but what did we stand as a society to gain from this i mean this was done with this incredible level of secrecy you had these people who i i read in the documentation that when it looked like it was going to be an extra 15 months before they could theoretically leave they were literally put into a maximum lockdown penitentiary they, they would not let these people have any communication with the outside world and presumably when they came back they all kept this secret of this amazing experience until their deaths. I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, nobody really came out and admitted to having been part of this. Fate Magazine provides true reports of the strange and unknown. Keep up with the latest on angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, life after death, and much, much more. 
To receive your free issue of Fate Magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy of ProjectCamelot.org. We have it linked at theparacast.com. Also, the Serpo.org site, so you can get information on both. Bill, you had a response to David's question. Yeah, sure. The problem is when we're talking about motivations, I can give you my own guesses, but Mm -hmm. they're as as valid as your guesses or Gene's guesses or anybody else out there who's listening to this who has a guess, and you'll find that there are as many guesses as there are people who know a little bit about this story. I have a lot of concerns about the story. I've never made it secret. My own position, just to back up to the big picture, my own position about this is that I've been a reporter, and as I've stated in the um, introduction page of the SOPO website, that it's quite possible that this is disinformation. Um, In fact, my own conclusion is that for sure it's disinformation. I think that this is a given. But the whole thing about disinformation is that there's a baby in the bathwater somewhere, and there's a lot of circumstantial evidence that suggests that an exchange program of some kind took place. This has been a persistent rumor that will not go away in the deep black and intelligence communities for the last two or three decades. I've even been told by an intelligence insider that, quote, everybody knows that there is truth to this story, unquote. And the everybody mm. they're referring to are the people on the inside. It's like, okay, right. you know. I mean, even John Lear, who is who is extremely skeptical of the official Serpo story, the official, in inverted commas, Serpo story, uh, said a little while ago, he said, well, of course he went to Reticulum 4. But he said, but only three people went, and one of them went crazy, and the whole thing was a fiasco, and they're not soccer-playing mom-and-pop aliens. There's a whole sinister thing behind it, which I think is possibly quite true. But for me, in all of that, the significant part of it is, of course he went to Reticulum 4. And if you think of the logic behind it. It's like there's an emotional barrier to kind of conceiving the possibility that we may have gone all that distance. It's something that we're not used to thinking about. We haven't really been introduced to the idea in the UFO literature. But logically, there's no reason why not. If those guys can come here with their craft, why can't we hitch a ride back on the shuttle going the other way? Um, It would make sense that this... It would actually make sense if there had been alien contact, which a huge number of your listeners will accept, that this would have happened. I mean, why not? I think the controversy is in the details of the story, and the motivation is a really, really good question, because what this backs up to is whether these Ebens are the greys, the ones Mm -hmm. that are purported to do all the abductions, what their motivations are, whether they are hostile, whether this is a cover story, all this thing about playing soccer and, you know, their mom and pop uh, type... Yeah, the um, descriptions of the planet itself are... Yeah. Um, Yeah, and there are all kinds of anomalies in the description of the planet. I mean, 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 it's like 
I flagged them up an awful long time ago, and ironically, this is one of the reasons why I got involved in the story, because in November, as soon as this came out, I started to pipe up with a lot of detailed questions, um, and it was those questions that attracted the attention of various people in the intelligence community um, and Anonymous himself, because they said, hey, these are really neat questions, who are you? And, and I said, well, I'm just... Joe Nobody here, I happen to be on Victor's list, but I've got some time on my hands, and I think that everyone should know about this, and if you want to put up a website, because Victor had said that um, I'm starting to run out of space in my primitive web TV system, this is Victor Martinez, who was the receiver of the information, and there's been some very strange hiatuses that have happened with that, that I'm quite happy to describe as best I can in a moment or two. And I was just the guy who put my hand up in, an, um, in the audience and said, well, okay, I built a website, and I hadn't got a clue what it would all lead to. I, I mean, it's been the most extraordinary year of my life, that's for sure. Um, and I, I, I completely understand this interview is about Serpo and it's not about me personally. But my life has changed 360 degrees since then uh, in terms of my interests, my contacts, my friendship circles, where I'm living, my new relationship with Kerry. Everything is completely turned about. And I, I mean, if anyone had whispered in my ear back in November that I would be talking to you about this subject matter sitting here in California, I would not have believed them. I just said, well, okay, I'll put up a website. And then everything else rolled up from there. What is it about this that's pulled you in so strongly, Bill? I mean, what? obviously this must resonate with you as being a legitimate story if it's pulled you into this extent. What about this has captured you? I think that's a, that's a, that's a wonderful question. The, the only answer I can give is it's the same thing that has captured tens of thousands of other people, people who write to me. I, I opened, opened an email, just one of thousands, just five minutes before we picked up the phone to each other from somebody who says, thank you so much for letting me know about this latest release. Um, I think about this almost every day. It's incredible information. I hope it's true. I've got a lot of problems, a lot of questions with the information, but thanks and keeping it upcoming. There's something about the story that seems to be compelling. And my best guess is that it may have something to do with an archetype of the fact that, you know what, we really aren't alone, and you know what, it, it, like, it makes this alien planet real. We've had a lot of stories about discs crashing in the desert and, you know, and, and interviews, or maybe not, with aliens who are kept in secret facilities deep underground and stories of abductions and weird contacts and all sorts of stuff like this. But nowhere in the literature have we had official accounts or so-called official accounts of, of other planets and other cultures and where these guys live and how they transport themselves around and what the geography is like. And I think that just rang a huge bell of fascination with a lot of people, myself included. And it's just like, supposing this was true, what is it like out there? What are these alien planets like? What are these, you know, alien cultures like? And mm -hmm. how do they think? And how do they work? And is it true that they don't have a money system? And how about their energy device, you know, that, that, uh, that apparently gives free energy? And the whole thing becomes something that a lot of people kind of hope, hope might be true. And I sort of say this on the deepest, on the deepest archetypal level. Um, it grabbed me 
at the time, when this information came out, there's a huge flurry of response upon Victor Martinez's email list. It's the kind of forum, I, I guess you could call it. My own involvement, just to go back to what I said a few moments ago, was that literally late one night I could not get to sleep. I had all these questions going through my mind. Just simple questions like, well, if this alien society has only got 100,000 beings in it, A, how come it's so small? B, how come it could be self-sustainable? B, how is, you know, and so on and so forth, and about mm -hmm. their war and about their culture and about um, all sorts of things like this. And I couldn't sleep, and I got up in the middle of the night, and I wrote down all these questions, and first thing in the morning, I fired them back to Victor Martinez. Next thing I knew, within 24 hours, I had a number of people who, who in my naivety, I hadn't I hadn't even heard of, who are well-known names in the field, and they're all on Victor's list, who said, who are you? These are neat questions. Here's my phone number. Please call me. Now, now I realize, being not quite so naive, that these guys weren't just necessarily extending a hand to friendship. They may well have been tasked to, tasked to find out who I was, you know, as would be uh, the responsibility of anyone in the intelligence community. And, uh -oh. and I, I admit that openly. Hmm. I'm sure, I mean, I'm sure I've been tracked and followed every inch of the way. Um, I may be considered to be an asset or I may be considered to be a liability, but I have absolutely no idea. But I just picked up the ball um, and I thought more people need to know about this than this list of what was at the time, I think about 130 people. More people need to know about this. And one of the people who responded favorably to my questions, which are all listed on the website somewhere, I think in kind of release number three or four or five or something, was, according to Victor, anonymous himself. Now, I never had direct contact with that guy in, well, actually, I, I haven't had direct contact with him at any point, but there's some peculiarities in the story that started at the beginning of this year. You've entered another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. I have to tell our listeners, you're in the PowerCast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney. We're talking to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy, and they're responsible for something called ProjectCamelot.org, and there's a link over at the PowerCast.com website if you want to check out more. We're also talking about the background of the ever-mysterious tale of Project Serpo. Is it real? Is it live? Is it Memorex? I don't know. I don't know if I buy it yet or not, but it's a fascinating story. Bill, go ahead. Uh, <laughs> right. So I think where I was there was I was talking about how Anonymous himself had responded to my questions. And in one of the releases back to Victor Martinez, because at that point they were coming backwards and forwards every few days, this guy said, thanks for all your questions. And in particular, I want to respond to those of Bill Ryan. Um, and then sort of structured his next release around a Q&A based on my questions. Now, this was before the website, but once again, purely naively, I think, I mean, it's like I was so acknowledged by that. I thought, wow, this is great. I'm adding value to this incredible thing. And here I was <laughs> in the back row of the audience before that being, <laughs> being but, uh, uh, just Mr. Joe Nobody. I did have some time on my hands. I have got some website skills, although they're pretty primitive. 
And I just piped up and I volunteered. And I said, hey, look, if I build a website, would this be valuable? And Victor Martinez said, yes, please. I'm just about to run out of room. Um, and I agree, all of this information needs to be archived. And so I did that. And then, of course, as soon as I uh, started the website, then the floodgates opened because, first of all, I decided to tell my real name because it, it was only really 60 seconds worth of thought in my own head as I was writing the introduction of the website. I thought, well, people are going to ask who's put up this website. And then I thought, well, it's going to take anyone in the intelligence community about a minute and a half to find out who I am. You know, mm -hmm. Because, I mean, I haven't done anything like this before. I've never got anything to hide. I'm not a member of the military or intelligence or government or anything like this. I'm just an ordinary citizen. And of course, they'll find out who I am. You know, And so I thought, well, the best place to hide is in the open, which has since become the Camelot mantra. And I said, well, this is who I am, and I'm just putting the information together. I stated everything that was true. And, um, and as the story really began to roll, the first major thing that happened was I was asked to do an interview for Coast to Coast um, on, I think it was the 6th of December. And I'd never done a radio interview with anyone, anyone before. Um, <laughs> that's a whole three-hour thing. Um, and uh, and we got a number of other people to come on board to help me out. But then once that had um, had been aired, then I got requests for a lot more interviews, um, which you'll understand. Not because anyone was interested in me, but because they were interested in the story for exactly the of same course. reasons as you are. Sure. And what happened, which I completely didn't anticipate, uh, once again in my naivety, was that I would become a kind of spokesperson for the story. And if you look back on this, this is completely logical, because Victor Martinez flatly refused to go on the air simply because he's a private guy. Um, and I completely respect that. I'm fairly used to public speaking, so I'm a management consultant, I've dealt with groups of people and I like talking to people and, you know, and so on and so forth. And there's no one else who anyone can contact because all the other guys are shadowy figures behind the scenes. And so I became, with, with lots of inverted commas, Mr. Serpo. And then of course after that, which again I, I hadn't anticipated, was that when people started to get frustrated with the story, because of all the anomalies and inconsistencies that were evident to anyone, um, including myself, all the time. Then they wanted to attack somebody, and there wasn't anyone who they could attack, so they attacked me. So it's like it had its downside, um, as well as its interesting side. Do you think you may be being um, set up with all this? It kind of sounds a little bit like that. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's... I've, I've always thought that that's a possibility. Um, I've never denied it. You see, contrary to what people think, I've never been an advocate of the story. What I am an advocate of is an advocate of people being willing to suspend their disbelief to give the story due consideration. Um, I haven't had anything to do with, you know, um, uh, with the material in the releases. In fact, earlier on this year, when the so-called Team Commander's logs were being published, I mean, I tell you, I read this stuff and I thought, Oh, God, I don't want to publish this. This is terrible. You know, this is awful material. I could see it. You know, I I wanted to correct it. I wanted to make it better, you know, but I didn't because I announced my duty, my, my sense of my own duty right at the start of this thing, which is just to present the information to the public, come what may. And that's what I did. But there were some stories there that I did not want to publish because they were, you know, because they were so terrible. And... Um, I, this is Carrie. Terrible in the sense that they were, you know, I don't know. There's something about, you know, playing badminton or something. You know, um, I <laughs> yeah. mean, some of the details are appear to be ludicrous, at least from our point of view, and some of them are also technically off. 
as 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 is well known, um, Bill Hamilton is one of the more um, astute critics that the uh, Serpo story has had, and he he you may be familiar with him. He's a very well known researcher, and has has been very into um, investigating all sorts of stories for for so many years that I can't even count them. I just want to interject here, and you know I, I'm not sure that you're interested, but we just interviewed John Lear and. Um, he is another researcher and very well-known um, sort of UFO um, buff, I guess you might say, and, and I assume you, you know who John Lear is, the oh, yeah. ex-pilot. Um, he's, he's quite deep in and has contacts in the military-industrial complex that are, are far-reaching. And uh, he, he actually says on on camera, and I'll be publishing this soon, um, that the Serpo story, he thinks, is disinfo in a large part, but he agrees that, um, indeed, we have sent astronauts, we have a whole ast secret astronaut corps, and have sent, um, you know, astronauts to other planets, and that the core story itself is, is quite probably too, very true. And this is basically what we believe, um, that, that the core story is true, um, that whether the planet was called Serpo or God knows what, who knows, um, whether it was, you know, Ebens or whatever you want to call them, who knows that. Um, there's so many details that you could take issue with. But the basic premise is that we've been off planet, that we've interacted with the visitors and you know that's the core of, of this story and what's interesting is to try to follow the trail between um, the, the disinfo that goes on the people that you know that try to trash it and what their motivation is I mean there's a whole CIA faction that's trying to you know trash the story and and spread disinfo just because they don't want disclosure to happen they don't want people um, they don't want it spreading to the general populace why there's another faction of the DIA that wants this out there. Right. Now, so, and I have so many questions, I don't know where to start, but why does the CIA want to stop this disclosure? What's, the, what's their motivation? Well, why does anybody in the government want to stop disclosure? Because they'll lose the power that they have. Because they're, you know, basically it's it's all about oil, and I, I mean, it's all about these old technologies that they've got, you know, the normal populace um, kind of um, drawn and quartered over. I mean, they lose all this if you if you start to invite in aliens, you invite in free energy, and if you invite in, you know, zero point energy, you invite in, um, you know, travel to other planets, you you probably do something to the religious uh, fanaticism that's out there and, and they have to widen their minds. I mean, there's so many societal reasons for these people to want to keep the lid on this this thing. And especially people in power. I mean, for God's sake, the American government is not even really the power source anymore. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and Gene and Dana. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bill Ryan, Kerry Cassidy. They're responsible for ProjectCamelot.org. Go to ProjectCamelot.org or 
Check our link at theparacast.com. And now we're talking about alleged or possible government disinformation. And, David, you have a 1,000 questions. Let's try to well, get to at least 900 of them. Okay. So in the, in the latest disclosure, the thing that I found incredibly fascinating was the rather detailed description of this uh, crystal rectangle device, this limitless power source that... Uh, that is, is described very uh, very intricately, a lot of detail, and I found it to be really fascinating, guys. Um, and also this uh, issue of a secret production of hydrogen five pentagen, which it looks like is is in a way the fuel for this uh, for this device. Now here's the thing: so you've got entrenched powers that control oil, and that manipulate so much of our lives with this control that they exert. But let's say that they could now have access to this this limitless energy device it seems to me like they're the ones that are in a position to expand their power significantly if they could be the ones that could come out and say look at what we've got i think at this point people and again this is my i'm just sort of putting my 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 thoughts about this into this whole discussion but it looks like the population in general has been conditioned for many years now to become accepting of this potential of this reality or this potential reality of these visitors. And so if, if I was the power structure, I think my stance would be if I'm the one on my watch, I'm going to release this information. On my watch, I'm going to say, you know what, guys, there's this whole thing that's been going on that none of you know about, but as a result of it, we have a limitless power source. Our dependence on, on oil will now basically to some large extent, go away. You still can't make plastic with this uh, crystal rectangle. But for the most part, it seems like the powers that are entrenched could simply convert over to this new energy methodology and still be the powers that are entrenched. But as a separate question, has any real physicist looked over the detailed notes in the latest release about this crystal rectangle device, and have they given you due diligence on it? Does this make sense from a physical point of view? Right. Wonderful questions you raised there. First of all, let me say that two or three years ago, um, I wrote the only other um, article which I've ever written, which is still, I think, published out there on the net somewhere, on the Serendipity website. It's uh, The URL is serendipity.li, um, which is for Liechtenstein. And um, in that article, I anticipated this in a weird kind of way. And I said, well, you know what? If I was in the position which you've described and I had access, uh, let's say I was in the um, American government or the secret government or in some position of power um, and I had access to this free energy device and I and my intentions were less than altruistic, what I would do was I would not sign the Kyoto Treaty. I would allow the world to go to hell in a handbasket, if I may say that, and to um, and to allow the world to run out, to allow China and India and all the other um, uh, macroeconomic powers, potential powers, to run into deep trouble. Wait until everyone is on their knees, and then reach into my back pocket and say, "Well, you know what? We've got this energy, and you better talk to us." Hmm. See, it's a way of keeping power, but you've got to wait. You might have to wait 50 years for the oil yeah. to run out. If it was released now, and if it was in the public domain, then China would have it, then India would have it, and because of their um, huge populations and their enormously expanding industrial base, then actually they would very quickly 
um, become the major powers on the planet. And if you read The Last Hours of Ancient Sunlight by Thomas Hartman, a wonderful book, he chronicles how way back for thousands of years, every major society has fallen to its knees and crumbled at the point when they ran out of energy, even when, it's mm -hmm. the, when they didn't have any more forests to, to, uh, to cut down and burn the wood off and so on and so forth. My suspicion, uh, exactly as Kerry says, is, is that somewhere in there, uh, the motivations do include control over energy, but uh, the powers that be in America may well want to have the energy device for themselves. There's no question in my mind this thing already exists. Uh, I mean, they have it, and they could release it tomorrow. Um, but then what would happen? There would be a whole global collapse, and America would lose its power. In response to your other question about whether this has been given due diligence by um, any physicists, I wrote to Hal Putoff just a couple of days ago after release number 19, which went into some detail about the so-called Pentagen. And he sent me back a very courteous response, saying that in the formal literature, which is all he has access to, um, the fifth isotope of hydrogen is very unstable, only lasts for a few seconds or microseconds and can't be used in any device. Um, and that's really all he knows. But at the same time, I do know that he's following all this with great interest and, 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 um, and he would love to lay his hands on such a thing for testing in the Institute of Advanced Studies in te Texas, but he hasn't got it. Um, as you know, he's been devoting his whole life to, uh, well, his whole life in, uh, in the last 20 years to the hunt for some kind of um, workable source of zero-point energy. He doesn't have it yet. Um, well, actually, I have to interject here. Um, Hal Pudoff is, you know, obviously very entrenched in the whole sort of military-industrial complex, and, and what he does have and what he doesn't have, um, we, we actually don't know. Mm -hmm. um, the fact is uh, there are things that, that people talk about on the surface in, in regard to this, uh, you know, free energy and zero-point energy, especially if they're coming from one angle, and there's a completely different, you know, side of things that they talk about among themselves and they deal with. And, you know, there's the whole Area 51 and, and the underground bases and, and so on. So, you know, there's so much to this subject that um, you almost get, you get off at least the Serpo, um, the subjects, and, and that's, that's up to you. But I did want to interject that um, our interview recently with Ralph Ring, which is in print right now on, um, there's, there's some details uh, that Bill compiled um, on, on our website about Ralph Ring and this his relationship. Website and his relationship with Otis Carr and uh, the connection to Tesla and free energy. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is, his story is that not only does it exist, but they had built a craft around it, that the government came in, uh, disbanded the group of people, um, and that they, they actually, you know, I mean, Otis Carr died as a result of it, and um, Ralph Ring himself has been under what I would consider Serious surveillance, basically uh, squashed down by the by the military industrial complex, and and had his dreams uh, trashed. So, so to answer your question, um, you know, the technology is definitely out there. Um, it's it's actually not even a question anymore. It's only a question to the larger um, sort of body of population that that is living in sort of this third world um, mentality in which, you know, we send tin cans, you know, up in space and expect them not to blow up and so on. Hey, I wanted to ask you something about that, Carrie, because a long time ago, back in the 1950s, we heard about Otis T. Carr and this 
X-1 or whatever spacecraft that he was trying to build. And most people in the UFO field dismissed him as some kind of crackpot. I heard him a couple of times on the Long John Neville radio show, and I have to tell you, ladies and gentlemen, the progenitor of all the shows, all the radio shows that you listen to on the subject of the paranormal was the late Long John Neville, before there was Art Bell, before there was George Norrie, before there was Gene Steinberg and David Bietney and the rest of us, there was Long John Neville. Now, Otis T. Carr kind of disappeared from the scene around 1960 or 1961 or thereabouts. And in our next section, since you raised the subject, Carrie, maybe we should do a little historical background for those who never heard of him. And the fact is that, as I said, he is or was perceived in the UFO field as somewhat of a crackpot. Is that the proper designation? We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and tune in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com. We have William Burns, the publisher of UFO Magazine, on the line. William, can you give us an offer for our readers about getting the magazine? Yes, I sure can. This is UFO Magazine, and I'm Bill Burns, the publisher, and here's an offer for your listeners. We have a special five-issue introductory offer for first-time subscribers, 1995 for your first five issues. Not available anywhere else, but on the Paracast. So, Bill, how do they place the order? People can place orders by going to www.ufomag.com. They can also place orders over the phone at 1-888-UFOMAGA, or they can write to us at Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Bill, give us that contact information again. It is UFO Magazine, Post Office Box 11013, Marina Del Rey, California, 90295. Or they can go directly to www.ufomag.com. And they can also call 1-888-UFO-MAGA, and they can subscribe right over the phone with a credit card. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy, responsible together, separately, and all that stuff for ProjectCamelot.org. And at the Paracast.com, we have a link to their site and also to the Project Serpo site. So, Carrie, tell us about Otis T. Carr. Okay, well, actually, I'm going to turn this over to Bill because I am no expert on Otis T. Carr. What I did is I'm a filmmaker, and I interviewed Ralph Ring, who worked with, with Carr, and who tells a story which is incredibly compelling. Um, he's very elderly at this time. Uh, he's his had some very serious health problems. He almost died in the hospital. Um, but he's come forward. He's, he's a 
charming, amazing man. And his story of working with Otis Carr is really actually really stunning um, and I am at this time editing it I'm a documentary filmmaker basically if you want a history of Otis Carr you're going to have to possibly go to Bill here who has some background in this area but my my experience is with with Ralph Ring and like I said um, the interview will be released released in about um, a week or two and at that time, you'll hear the actual story. What I can tell you, based on my experience with Ralph Ring, is that Otis Carr was a brilliant man, um, that they were indeed working on something that is absolutely phenomenal, um, that the story is so compelling when you hear it, um, there'll be no doubt in your mind that, that Ralph Ring experienced this. Where you go with it from there, of course, is, is up to you. But um, let me turn this over to Bill, and, and he can probably give you a little history on Otis Carr. Okay. Um, thanks for that. I started to find out as much as I could about Otis Carr after I had met Ralph Ring for the first time. I, I was introduced to him in, um, in March, and prior to that, I'd heard his name, but I didn't really know much about it. And at that point, I certainly didn't know as much about him as you two do now from your own experience and from your own background reading. And of course, the first thing which I wanted to find out about was um, a question that I believe you have, David, that um, I too had read a lot of Tesla's writings, and I hadn't heard any mention of Carr at all in that. Mm -hmm. There's a book... Uh, which is called, uh, just let me check it out, it's called Return of the Dove. Let me just see if I can dig out the author, Return of the Dove. I'll get back to you a little later on in the story, if, if I can, uh, a little later on in the interview, I can find out the name of this book called Return of the Dove. And there's a chapter in there about Otis Carr. And in 1925, Otis Carr was working as a package clerk um, in, a, in a hotel in New York. Um, and, uh, and he bumped into Tesla um, entirely by accident. And Tesla approached him and said, um, would you go out and buy four pounds of peanuts and bring them to my suite? Um, and he gave Carr some money, and uh, because this is the kind of request that Carr is very used to, um, he went out and he, bought, and he bought, some, bought some peanuts, returned them to Tesla, um, and then found out what a lot of people knew and know now, that Tesla's... Uh, one of Tesla's delightful little quirks is that he liked to feed pigeons. Mm -hmm. and, um, and then Carr invited Tesla to come up for a chat. And what happened after that? Now, what seems to have happened was that Tesla recognized something in Carr and sort of um, uh, earmarked him as somebody who she, he should meet and talk to. And to cut quite a long story short, Carr and Tesla spent day after day after day feeding the pigeons together, sitting on the um, on the steps of their hotel, talking about stuff, and Carr um, just absorbed everything that Tesla was saying, and Tesla just talked to him all the time about his research um, and what he was doing. Now this was this was in uh, the late 1920s when Tesla was already pretty old, and as far as I understand, this relationship lasted for two or three years, and Carr was certainly given to understand that Tesla was imparting information 
to him, like, here's, you know, here's what I know, here's what I really know, here's stuff which I've never written down, I trust you to take this forward. Um, I mean, it was an extraordinary relationship. As best I know, they didn't work together in a laboratory, Carr didn't function as a scientist, it, it, um, as an experimental scientist in those days. But he had been earmarked by Tesla as somebody to carry on the flame, to carry on the torch. Now, um, much in the same way, let me say that that Ralph himself was became, in a sense, the apprentice of Otis Carr and is now carrying the torch forward. Um, what is interesting in the sense of, of Ralph Ring, which is somebody who is alive now that we can actually go to, is the fact that he was basically barred from discussing this subject for a number of years, for some, I don't know, something like 30 years. He basically has not been able to, to bring this forward. And it is because Bill, because of our Camelot sort of experience and, and Bill um, connecting with uh, a friend of, of Ralph Ring, who introduced him to Ralph, and because Bill had, you know, sort of the background in free energy and um, and physics that that he he then went and spent time with Ralph and discovered I mean the man has huge um, albums with all kinds of detailed diagrams and 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 so on I mean it's it's quite amazing and he lives in this you know this this little house um, in a place that I won't tell about but he's um, He's basically not talked about this subject in a, in, in a number of years. He's not a publicity seeker. We've had to beg him uh, to come forward, actually, and to, to be interviewed on film. He's just now beginning to kind of come out of his shell, and um, we've also connected him with a group of of people that are involved in wanting to, to bring this, this to life. And the fact of the matter is, and that group of people is led in part by um, a, a guy named Gary Voss, and they are very much um, building a community that, that, that intends to sort of bring this invention back alive and follow the diagrams and, and you know, and recreate it. Um, it. There are people involved in this community like Richard Hoagland and John Hutchinson, who are well-known people in the zero-point energy field. So basically what I was trying to say was that the sort of passing of the baton went on between Otis Carr and Ralph Ring. And again, Ralph has been in the dark, keeping quiet. He is not a publicity seeker. He's a wonderful um, elderly man who leads a very quiet life. Um, he has, however, a very interesting friend. And again, this free energy as um, subject gets kind of very, very wide. Um, but one of his closest friends uh, is the very uh, well-known Bob Bigelow, who at this time actually has a test flight out there in space, and it does not use free energy. It's kind of um, an anomaly as to why uh, Ralph is, is wandering around with all this knowledge, um, completely unknown by most people in his midst. Um, and he's ha like I said, he has volumes of material. Um, this is truly his dream. And it's, it's actually been picked up by a group called The Ranch. Um, they have a website. Uh, they're led by a guy named Gary Voss. And they're very deep into uh, zero-point energy. Um, and they're in, they've got people like Richard Hoagland and John Hutchinson involved. And they are, um, we have introduced them to Ralph. 
and basically they're going to be trying to make this uh, invention, this what is in essence, you know, a flying saucer that runs on uh, zero point energy, a reality, among other things, other inventions that they they have been, you know, involved in on their own. So it's a kind of uh, whole synchronicity that's going on right now around this subject. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast. Reminder that we're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're talking this week to Bill, Ryan, and Carrie Cassidy, and we're talking about the work they do at ProjectCamelot.org. You know, I wonder a couple of things also about some of these people like Richard Hoagland's a very controversial figure. And to tell our listeners to the PowerCast, we've actually been in touch with Mr. Hoagland when we hope that maybe he'll appear on the show in the near future. But we're not going to treat him gently if we have skepticism. We're going to present it. So I just wanted to bring that forth as a reality check that maybe we're not 100 percent certain on Richard Hoagland, but I'd like your insights. Yeah, sure. I mean, John Hutchison. Um, for example, who's completely behind that particular project, um, and who's an active engineer, he's been working, uh, creating the Hutchison effect, um, and welcoming any um, film crews into his laboratory for the last 20 years, I believe, is certainly intending to bring his operation down to the ranch. Um, and the idea, basically, is that whereas individually um, experimenters and researchers working in their garages or in their attics or their basements may well run up against all kinds of um, uh, financial and conceptual and emotional brick walls. Together, there may be an inspiration whereby the, the whole may be greater than some of its parts. People can help each other out. They can, they can share their experience. They're in a better position to get funding. I know that Hoagland isn't an experimental scientist, but he's very much supportive of the idea. And he's an actual, you know, he's a brilliant thinker, and he's 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 very well aligned and very very familiar with with NASA. Um, his experience comes from NASA, um, and so you know, think what you may about his, you know his his actual research. Um, having him behind, uh, sort of throw his hat into the ring along with these guys is is for them, uh, you know, just another sort of acknowledgement that there are people out there that, you know, that have a background that are interested in what's going on. And I have to say that Hal Pudoff has contacted Bill and is very interested in Ralph Ring and in, in what Ralph has to say. Um, and again, once the interview, um, the film interview that I've done is released, I'm sure that you'll have a lot more um, sort of questions and and comments and so on about this subject. Carrie, you mentioned that Ralph Ring was barred from speaking about this topic for 30 years. Could you give us a little bit more background on that? Right. Um, well, you know, you shouldn't actually quote me as to the number of years because I don't know how many years he hasn't really spoken about this. But his story is, and like I said, will be released in his own words, which is, as a filmmaker, that's kind of where I like to come from. It's not up to me to put words in his mouth. But I can tell you, in general, the group was disbanded somewhere around 1961, Bill, is that correct? And um, after that, uh, something like, I don't know, 10 years after that, 
he was still so enthralled with his dream of of you know free energy and crafts in fact he believes in in how the houses and can be built that would float and i mean he's quite uh you know a visionary but at any rate he he built a flying saucer house that is still in existence i believe um and i think it is actually in arizona it's in prescott arizona and um so the dream didn't die in 1961 when the FBI came into their headquarters and literally seized their research and closed them down and told them told him not to have contact with Otis Carr, um, completely disbanded the group. And it is my sort of theory, I guess you might call it, that that some of them, including Otis Carr, were probably dealt with in, in mind control um, ways. But at any rate, it, it's been since 1961 that he, he has not really spoken about this. And, and, and I mean, he's been working as a locksmith, for God's sake, um, for years. And prior to that, he worked with Jacques Gousteau. I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a really uh, a brilliant sort of theoretician, I guess you might call him, and so on. So but I don't want to really eclipse my interview with him. I'd like him to speak for himself when that comes out. Let's move on with this subject right here. I wanted to basically get some personal reactions here. Now, Bill, having read or studied about this Otis T. Carr episode, do you really, at this point, believe there's enough information to take it seriously? I think there's enough information to ask a lot of further questions. And as Carrie was saying, this group... Um, called The Ranch. They plan to establish a community of researchers and developers, uh, people who've been working for many years on their own to develop uh, and research electrographic effects. People like John Hutchison, who's very well known, very well re uh, respected, and a lot of other names that would be recognized by others, which I can't remember because I haven't immersed myself in this field personally. Um, they're taking this sufficiently seriously to um, want to pick this up and see if they can replicate the research. I think that's where we're at the moment. The problem is that um, a lot of Otis Carr's personal notes and details and blueprints um, and the material research itself was all seized back in 1961. Ralph is now 71 years old. This all happened 45 years ago. Uh, his memory is sketchy uh, and because he hasn't talked about this for so long he doesn't have all the details at his fingertips and so what I want to do and this this uh, is still something still ongoing is um, I want to help him to write up the technical details of, of, of how to replicate this thing in the laboratory he's very able to describe the sort of fundamental big picture principles by which this thing works at the moment, I don't. I, I literally don't know whether or not somebody could take this into a laboratory and build exactly what they built. I, I just don't know whether that's the case. But you see, it's a little bit similar to my philosophical stance about the SOPO materials. Um, when I came into that 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 whole area that just as we're talking now invites a whole load of questions from believers and skeptics and people who are saying what if and people who are saying no way and so on and so forth it's sufficiently important 
that if there's a baby in that bathwater, we can't throw it out. We just can't throw it out. Supposing it's true, even if there's a 5% chance that it's true, even if there's a 1% chance that it's true, we've got to give it a go because there's so much at stake. And even if there's one person who's listening to this interview now who says, you know what, this is incredible. Maybe some genius teenager um, uh, who's been experimenting in his basement and he's, you know, and he's not getting treated well at high school, but he's been building stuff and it works. You know, maybe he's going to pick this up. Maybe he's the next guy. All it takes is for people to pick up this idea and check it out. And so just as I was saying earlier on with reference to the Serpo story, I'm not an advocate of the story. I'm not trying to beat people over the head urging people to believe anything we're saying, but we do want people to check it out for themselves. And we're delighted to have the chance to talk to you because it may inspire other people to check it out. If it's all a load of nonsense, then that's what the truth is. But what if it was real? What if this was valid? That's the question. For 58 years, fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate brings you the latest in all aspects of the paranormal, like angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To receive your complimentary Fate magazine, call now at 1-800-728-2730. Or visit their website at www.fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. Let me tell our listeners, you're on the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. We're proud to be talking this evening with Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy, and they have a site called ProjectCamelot.org, ProjectCamelot.org, and it's also linked directly at the Paracast.com website. And we invite you to check it out and understand here they're serving in the capacity as journalists, written and photo and movie journalists, and maybe they're not necessarily saying we believe this, but they're presenting a lot of information of food for thought. The thing I wonder, of course, is that if the government or secret government, in quotes, whatever it is, really sees that you're bringing out information that shouldn't be disclosed, wouldn't they have prevented you in the beginning from broadcasting it or filled it with so much, so much disinformation that nobody could believe it? I just wonder about that. Yeah. This is something which I've been talking about with Kerry for the last two months, is that if we were seen to pose any kind of a threat, and in a sense we were kind of saying bring it on, you know, this is one reason why we're happy to talk to you, we want our names to be out, we're inviting people, you know, we want the snowball to roll. Um, and, the, pur- and- the purpose of Project Camelot really comes to the bear here because it's all about safety in numbers. It's all about people like us. There are many people like us out there. There are people that are working heavily in the field. There are people that have had experiences, whether they've been you know, uh, abducted against their will or because they... They, they met with uh, vis- the visitors. We are encouraging people that are deep in uh, the military-industrial complex to come forward with their stories. Um, we believe that we can provide a safety net 
if you will, in, in bonding together. We're not the first. Um, the Disclosure Project was, was here long before us. There are many organizations um, that are involved. There are many books being written. Whitley Strieber's recent book, The Grays, is, is coming out um, and is getting a huge notice. This field is, is just breaking out all over the place. The Circle Story is part of that. Uh, what you're really witnessing is a an effort towards disclosure on the part of part of what, if you will, the secret government. Um, another part which is battling them, creating dis distraction, creating disinfo. And yes, um, they could come after us at any time. The fact of the matter is, is that we believe um, hiding in plain sight is the way to go. Um, we believe we advocate that for our people as well, where we can provide uh, a degree of anonymity, um, a certain, you know, disguise such as as a voice or even um, a physicality. We'll, we will do that. But basically, Camelot is here for that purpose. For the last couple of months, Kerry and I have been very well aware that if any. Uh, agency who was not happy with what we were doing or what we stood for wanted to discredit us, the very first thing that they might try and think of doing would be to place in front of us some mouthwateringly delicious story that invited itself to be released, uh, which actually subsequently turned out to be um, a hoax and, uh, and so on and so forth, and then we could be gleefully shown to be you know, credulous and unreliable and all this sort of stuff. Now, so far this hasn't happened. We're convinced that this hasn't happened. We're prepared for the possibility of seeing in front of our eyes a juicy wriggling worm on a hook that we're meant to be biting on. And we're going to be very careful about this. We are in touch with people who are, have offered to help us out. I mentioned earlier that we introduced Mr. X to uh, Dr. Robert and Ryan Wood, the experienced researchers. We have a lot of friends um, now who are experienced and active in the UFO community, certainly. Uh, I have friends in the alternative health community. We're developing contacts in the free energy and anti-gravity research community who know how to tell um, the wheat from the chaff. And if somebody comes along who doesn't smell quite right, we're going to seek assistance and we're going to get assistance because there are a lot of people behind the scenes who are very, very supportive of what we're doing, what we're standing for. We've been overwhelmed by the amount of support we've been receiving for the principle of what Project Camelot stands for. We do intend to play things carefully. We're not credulous, meaning that we're not gullible. We do intend to present stories that come to us if we are convinced that they are not presented to us as a hoax for us to buy. And I should interject here that we have spent, before we kind of started, I started filming um, and doing interviews and doing a UFO documentary, and this is how actually I, I met Bill, is because I interviewed him about Project Serpo back in, uh, I believe it was March. And um, the fact is that we've both been re researchers, avid researchers, for many, many years uh, before this time. So we're, we're actually not naive about this this whole world. Um, the other thing is that we are not putting ourselves out there as a judge and jury. That's not our aim. Um, if someone comes forward with a story which to us after a certain amount of, um, you know, of review seems to us to be credible, we are going to present it and allow the audience to make their own decision. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. that's that's really what we're doing we're not making a decision for them and we are not a judge and jury I have an important question guys Uh, there's something about release 19 that struck me as being a very strong point in that there is um, extensive lists of people scientists and officials who are supposed to be involved with this whole situation there's a there's an extensive list of specific names my question is this this document has been out this week have any of the people named in this list of scientists and officials supposedly involved with this have any of these people come forward to specifically specifically claim no we know nothing about this or you know has there been any reaction from any of these people no but there are um, a number of people who are busily picking up that, that ball. I'm very pleased that this has happened, by the way, because the danger is that everyone kind of sits back, enjoys reading the story, and hopes that somebody else is going to do something with it. Mm-hmm. And actually, there are some people who are digging into those names. On the SERPA website itself, at the top of the page that contains Release 19, there's a link through to a forum where some of this information is being discussed. This isn't our forum, and we certainly aren't responsible for its content, but it's being discussed very seriously. And already, um, links and information have been discovered to 22 of those 66 people, and there are people who are working as we speak about this at the moment, um, including some folk who haven't uh, wanted their names to be published, but they're experienced researchers, and they've been researchers since before the days of the Internet. They're the kind of people you know, who look through dusty tomes and military records and stuff. And so this is taking place at the moment. I was very pleased to see in Release 19, which, by the way, completely took me by surprise. I had no idea this was happening whatsoever. But the very fact that it presents lists of names invites research. And uh, if those names <laughs> prove to be non-existent or prove to be you know, um, uh, invented or, or something like that, to the extent that one can prove a negative, then in itself, whoever this source is, is laying down a challenge saying, look, you know, here's some specific information. If you want to check it out, check it out. But, you know, you'll have to do the groundwork, but here are the names. And for me, this is a great step forward because the problem with releases that we had earlier on in the year, such as the team commander's logs, was that it was all a rattling good story, which some people appreciated and some people didn't. But it didn't contain any kind of verifiable information. And therefore, from a sort of scientific or forensic point of view, it was valueless in terms of substantiating the story. Now we're in a position where we can say, okay, you know, this person, and I haven't got any names at my fingertips, who are supposed to, you know, be directors of research at this laboratory or that laboratory in this year, did they exist? Most of those people must maybe still be alive. Let's check them out. Let's go and knock on their doors. Now, I'm not taking it upon myself to do this. I don't consider it my job. I don't have the time. I don't even have the experience to do meticulous research like that, but a number of people do, and that's what we invite. And let me say that we are more than willing to interview any of those people on this subject um, should they come forward um, or be discovered uh, by you know the researchers. Another dimension. You've entered the Paracast.
Uh, let me tell so, our listeners that you're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Biedney, and we're talking to Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy. We have another segment or two to go with them. They have projectcamelot.org. It's linked to at the Paracast.com website. Carrie, you were talking about the various contact. Go ahead. Oh, we were just. I was just saying that the names provided in the recent Serpo release give us um, also, you know, incentive to to actually provide, sort of make ourselves available to interview these people. Um, we are more than willing to do this. However, we are not researchers. We do have and know of many uh, people that are at this time, as we speak, researching those names, probably trying to get in touch with those people if they're still alive and mm-hmm. following out the, you know, the uh, trail. So uh, I guess the the word would be on that to stay tuned because at least there is something that can be followed up there. And if we could put in a plug simply for what we stand for here, if any one of the tens of thousands, if not many, many more than that, listeners who are listening to this at the moment, are connected with this story or connected with any other allied story that they feel is of importance. If there's anyone out there who's been sitting on something, having sleepless nights, maybe they're, maybe they're infirm, maybe they're elderly. Uh, if this is the case, we sympathize with you. If you've got a story that you want to get out, we will help you. We'll guarantee your anonymity. We'll do everything we can do to help tell your story. Uh, we haven't released any information about our sources, this is uh, <laughs> it's ironically a huge frustration for people who've been trying to chase down the Serpo story because they've been they've been banging on at me to try and release the information which I do have behind the scenes um, about some of the names involved in the Serpo story backstage. I've not released any of those. I will not do that, and we intend to stick to that journalists code of conduct. We will protect sources simply because there's so much at stake. Mm-hmm. So you know how to contact us. We'll get the story out. We'll be happy to talk to you about that story if it emerges. And the links are at projectcamelot.org if you want to get in touch with them. David? I have a bit of a meta question, and it involves one aspect of Release 19, and actually really involves the whole Serpo situation. There is a list on here that's in Section C, various alien types slash species known to the U.S. government. And it lists some really interesting names of, I guess, what are supposed to be alien species that have visited the Earth. Here's my question. In talking about the UFO phenomenon with a number of our guests, and especially some of the guests I find very compelling, our friend Jeff Ritzman, who's uh, talked to me on the air, talked to us on the air about his thoughts about what these things actually are. And then off the air, we've had some long discussions about this. One of the themes that keeps surfacing is the potential for these visitors to perhaps not be from another planet as much as they are from another alternate dimension, alternate universe. And um, I, I'm, I'm on the, the fence with this whole theory, but what I find interesting is that in the Serpo information, all of the entities are basically positioned to be extraterrestrial from another planet, when it seems like behind the scenes there is this idea that perhaps what we're dealing with are, are entities, maybe not from another planet, but from another physical reality we don't even understand. And I find that these stories, they sort of crash into each other. The the Serpo documentation really sets it up as these are creatures from another planet. Yet there's so much deep 
knowledge. I mean, for example, Whitley Strieber's writings really seem to underscore this idea, from what I get from them, that perhaps we're dealing with, again, some sort of a, a different type of being that we don't understand, that we don't understand the context for. What thoughts do you guys have about that whole situation, that whole notion that maybe we're not dealing with creatures from another planet, maybe they want us yeah. to think that? Sure. If I can pick that one up, I share the same meta question um, and the various angles uh, from which I can respond to that. One is that even within the experience of Project Camelot, so far, and it's only in its infancy, it's going to get an awful lot bigger than it is at the moment. We've established a good rapport with Mr. X, and we've established a good rapport with Dan Burish, and those two stories do not seem to support one another. Now, uh, as Kerry said, we're not judge and jury. We're not going to come down with any kind of a verdict about um, uh, in what way that apparent discrepancy can be resolved. And what we're doing is we've just got this piled up in the maybe box because maybe there's some way that we don't know about that everything that Mr. X says can be true and also um, Dan Burish's claims um, about um, aliens from our future who are really us, they're our descendants, um, and they come you know, from the future into the present in a way that makes them sort of um, interdimensional rather than interplanetary. That's almost the theory of the TV show The 4400, where these people were abducted, taken to the future, and sent back to perform some kind of activities that will change the future. Sure. I mean, um, well, I, let me interject here that the fact of the matter is, is that when you talk about interdimensions and when you talk about planets, what you're not actually tapping into is the fact that we are living in more than one di dimension, that the Earth exists in more than one dimension simultaneously. In fact, that there may be um, unlimited number of timelines, dimensions to this planet, um, that we simply exist even in our daily lives ignoring these other dimensions, that ghosts and um, you know entities exist in those other dimensions simultaneously while we're going through our daily lives. The fact is when you begin to transcend what we have, this is the third dimension, um, this material reality, you actually go into other dimensions and we are as a planet, many would say, and I agree, as a result of, of, of this transitioning towards 2012, moving into another dimension altogether. We are going from the third through the fourth and into the fifth dimension. So when you, when you question as to whether something is either or, it's, it's, I don't think it's quite accurate, accurate. I think what you might be wanting to think um, in terms of is that these entities have the ability because they have lived a lot longer than us and are perhaps more evolved spiritually to exist in more than one dimension and be aware of more than one dimension and travel in more than one dimension. We want to hear from you. If you have a comment or question about the Paracast, send it to news at theparacast.com. That's news at theparacast.com. And don't forget to visit our forums where you can talk to fellow listeners and gene in data. Just go to theparacast.com and click on the forum links. That's the forum links at theparacast.com.
Hey, let me tell our listeners you're in the PowerCast. With Gene Steinberg and David Bietany, we have one more session to go. With Bill Ryan and Carrie Cassidy, with very provocative information, a lot of stuff for you to chew over, a lot of things to think about. And they have a site called ProjectCamelot.org. Bill or Carrie, could you tell me, I assume that if you go to the site, they can get in touch with you from there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, on the Project Camelot site, they can either... Click on our email address, support at projectcamelot.org, and send us a regular email. Or there's a contact form where people can contact us anon- uh, anonymously if they wish, and that anonymity will be respected. Okay. okay. I wonder if I could just get back with my own perspective about your previous question, which is about the uh, quantity or the, uh, the physicality or the interdimensionality of our supposed visitors. Um, according to release number 19, um, which I think was one of your meta questions. In release 19, it mentions five types of alien beings purportedly. Uh, Ebens, archcoloids, quadloids, heploloids, and trantoloids. The only reason I can remember that is because I'm reading it. And they all say loids, which sounds strange uh, too, but I'll go back to that. Yeah, I mean, I'm not going to hang on to that information because... We know, I mean, when I say we, we in the UFO community know that there have been a lot of claims by people who really should know what they're talking about, reputable uh, whistleblowers like Clifford Stone and so on and so forth, that there could be as many um, as, uh, I think it's 165 or 167 different species known to the U.S. government. Other sources maintain there are about 50. Mr. X names a number. I can't remember what it is, but it's a lot larger than five. And if it was only five, I would say, well, look, we're not doing very well here. We're not keeping up with the pace because there's certainly more than that. That component of Release 19 sounds to me like a real misdirect. Um, it almost sounds to me like mischief. You know, uh, quadloids, heptaloids, um, what on earth is all this about? Well, I actually have, an, I have a theory on that. I believe what they're giving you there are classifications of aliens. They're not telling you a number of how many exist literally. What they're telling you are types of aliens that are out there. Obviously, maybe they exist. They're talking about the number of legs they have or, you know, some kind of... These are types. These are classifications. These are not literally the you know they're not actually laying out the numbers so i think you can you can make a case for the fact that they're they're you know classifying them they're not literally yeah. telling you the number of them. actually just to jump in here i'd like to say, and also just as proof that this is a li- that this is effectively a live conversation i just want to say that i hadn't thought of that angle that that maybe these are classifications um, so that maybe the 165 could be de- could be subdivided into those five types and somebody is kind of looking at this from a species classification point of view i have absolutely no idea but these are names that apart from apart from the first two ebens and archcoloids because archcoloids are mentioned earlier in the SOPA literature. Quadloids, heploloids, and trantoloids, as best I know, they've never emerged before anywhere, and I have no idea what they are, what they mean, um, and I'm not going to get hung up on it either. Um, as regards the interdimensionality of everything, my um, only um, take on that, th- there does seem to be a lot of evidence, as Kerry said from Streber and a lot of other people, that our visitors seem to have the ability to sidestep into some separate reality or dimensionality and then step back into our current reality very much at their will, absolutely at their control, maybe in a way that's augmented by some kind of advanced physics. Um, and and this enables the craft, they can do that with their crafts as well, which is part of the reason why sci- you know, UFOs 
appear and disappear in incredible speeds. There's a wonderful story that's recounted by Stephen Greer in one of his books that when I read it, it absolutely jumped right off the page at me. He reports the uh, the experience of somebody who was um, doing some uh, experimentation in astral projection. And this person was in a sort of altered state, and he succeeded in astrally projecting himself. And when in this altered state, he crashed straight into an alien craft that was also in this in this reality, whatever reality it was that he was traveling in as an astral projector, right. the aliens and their and their craft were also traveling in this, and he just crashed straight into the side of it. Now, because it wasn't a physical reality, no damage was done. And he describes these aliens looking at him in a kind of disapproving sort of way, as if to say, why don't you watch where you're going? And it's a kind of humorous story. But that really rang true to me that, as I said, as a sort of stepping stone between wherever they are physically over there and wherever they end up physically over here, rather than traveling through space, they may be sidestepping into some kind of other reality and then um, arriving here instantaneously for all we know. Well, it, it seems to me that if you figured out some way to travel faster than light, that would really sort of be required to move the vast distances between star systems, that one of the byproducts of moving faster than light would be, theoretically, that you would be able to move through multiple dimensions. It seems to, the two seem to sort of go hand in hand. Uh, very and, well said. Yeah, and what, with what we know about string theory or what the, the certain physicists are coming out with in terms of the theories around string theory, that certainly the idea of multiple dimensions seems not only feasible, but uh, more than anything, quite probable. This brings up another question to me, because here we've got, let's, let's play this game with the, with the categoriz categorizations of entities, where we hear a number like five, we hear 50-some-odd uh, species, we've heard 165. This makes me wonder, what in heaven's name is so interesting about this planet and us <laughs> that all of these entities, I mean, even if it's just five, that's four, four more than we knew about up until this moment. What is it about humans and Earth that would have these creatures all visiting here? I, I have to believe... Um this is not the most interesting planet in the universe. And it has to be on? the final question here because we're just about out of time. So go ahead. That's no, that's no problem. Um, actually, I'd like to, like to interject here. Um, one of the things that I do is have the rights, the movie rights, to a site called The Wingmakers. And The Wingmakers addresses this, uh, this question, um, you know, dead on. The fact of the matter is, is that the Earth is a water world, um, that we are a genetic library, and that our DNA is of special interest to these visitors, um, regardless of who they are, and that there is a huge um, experiment, if you will, being done in the universe that incorporates the Earth and that is about creating and evolving different species, higher species, towards in the move toward um, sort of a, a universal um, man, if you will. So there is um, there is great interest in the Earth um, for these reasons, and I would urge uh, your listeners to go to thewingmakers.com. Um, uh, there's a wonderful story there, and it's created by a guy named James. Uh, he himself is fairly deep in and, and, and un undercover, if you will. Um, he ha allows his webmaster, Mark Hempel, to do most of the contact with, with the general public. 
James is trying to stay out of the way of the government because he knows so much. Hmm. Hey, hmm. I got to end it right there. Thank you very much. Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy joining us on the Paracast. And uh, one more time, go to projectcamelot.org, projectcamelot.org. If you want to get a hold with Bill or Kerry or you have a story or information that they need to know about, there is a set of contact links there where you can just send a regular email or even post it anonymously and they'll get back in touch with you this has been a fascinating fascinating session on the paracast and bill and carrie this is only part one we want you back soon with more information maybe some follow-up because we know we will have questions from our listeners on by email and also on our message forums at theparacast.com thank you for joining us this evening on the Paracast. Gene, David, thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. Um, Thanks, folks. Thank you. This is Tim Beckley, Mr. UFO, reporting for ConspiracyJournal.com. Fascinated by the strange and unknown, things that go bump in the night, UFOs, time travel, Area 51, the Philadelphia Experiment, shady government cover-ups? Don't be left out in the lunar cold. Sign up now for our weekly online newsletter and receive our snail mail catalogs. Go to ConspiracyJournal.com or email Tim Beckley at MrUFO at WebTV.net. It's all out of this world. Gene Steinberg and David Biedney. You never know what's going to happen next. I don't know. I, I, I'm still. I, I. There's a lot of information here, and I, Gene, I'm still on the fence about this case. I'm not so sure what's real or not real about Project Serpo. Well, there are threads, of course, on AboveTopSecret.com that we were mentioning earlier. And one of them basically says, based on what this anonymous person says, mm-hmm. this stuff about the aliens is just a lot of nonsense and that there's it's just disinformation as far as they're concerned. Now, this is the problem I guess I have with a lot of these things. If you can't go back to the original source and say, hey, who is this? What's this about? Let's cross-examine this dude find out what he has to say, see if it passes muster, and that sort of thing. And that becomes mightily difficult when you don't have the name. Now, I get the impression that Bill Ryan and Kerry Cassidy are sincere. Mm-hmm. That they, I would are, agree with that. Yeah, I agree. They're 100 percent sincere. They seem to be trying honestly to understand what's going on. They're very careful about it too, which is that they are not saying one way or the other whether it's real or Memorex or anything else. They even raise the same point that I raise, which is disinformation. Somebody's putting out the story mm-hmm. just to make the UFO people very ridiculous make us all look ridiculous and i don't know if that's the mib a hoaxer or what but you know that was the same thing they were saying about the mj12 documents in the originally, 1980s yeah. originally yeah. that william moore and rick doty who's this former agent and i give him that juice sound because i'm not sure about his credentials i asked yeah. doty by the way to come on the show and he said no way jose Really? No. He said no way Gene, actually, not no way Jose. Well, why? What was his rationale for that? No rationale. I'm not going to do it. That's it. He just won't do it. Yeah, well, because maybe he's listened to how we've spoken to other people and gotten to the bottom line about what's really behind their agendas. I mean, here's the thing. What you said is true. I think that uh, 
uh, Bill and Carrie uh, seem very credible, seem like nice people to me, but they are conduits for information. They're not really a source, and they're simply throwing the stuff out there. There are some aspects of this that are, that are compelling. Like I was mentioning tonight, this whole set of details about this limitless power source, very fascinating. At the same time, I've read through a lot of the Project Serpo details, the documentation provided by the crew that you know supposedly returned, and a lot of about what is said about this alien planet, I, it's not it's hard to believe. I, I'll tell you the, one of the issues I definitely have a problem with is this idea that the entire planet has a population of 100,000 beings. If you stop and you think about that, if that were true, then this is a, a civilization that clearly is in severe, dire straits as far as being able to survive. At 100,000 creatures, at 100,000 members, uh, this is a dying civilization, and that point really wasn't made. I mean, if there were really 100,000, you know, of these aliens and that's it, then uh, they're in deep trouble, and that didn't seem to be part of the notes that I read. So, you know, that that's one aspect of it. There are many aspects of it that are a little problematic, and I have to tell you, it, it's hard for me to believe that of the eight people that supposedly returned, that none of these people ever said anything to anyone about an experience like that. I understand that they were you know, carefully ch trained and chosen to be able to do this kind of a thing, but I, I really would have to believe if you actually had that experience, that even on your deathbed, you'd, you'd have to tell somebody. I would think so. This is the problem I have with all of these things. The fact is that people out there come up with these claims, but when you try to verify them, you hit a brick wall. And you could say, well, the government is keeping it a secret. Where the secret government is keeping it a secret. And mm -hmm. as far as the regular government is concerned, I don't think they can keep anything a secret. I don't consider the regular government to be very qualified to do anything. Literally, they always depend on the person who does the lowest bid. This is true with, look at the space program. The space program is a mess. We had a great start. We had a vision in the 1960s. Now it's a mess. We've got the shuttle, and it's got this foam casing that keeps yeah. falling off. And I think it's actually a lot stronger, but I think of the foam packaging that comes in your consumer electronics components, you know? And it's a lot stronger than that, but still, it's, it's, it's absurd. It's ridiculous what we have there. So I don't assume the government or believe the government really is that competent. On the other hand, this may be something that is above the government, and maybe we're using the name above top secret in the wrong way, but yeah. it's above the government, and that means that there may be other agencies out there. Or that, maybe below the government, actually <laughs> flying under the government's radar. I mean, that's... Look, e either way, look, it's above the government. It's possible. Sure. Yeah. Either way, it's above or below the government. They don't see what's going on. And if you ask people about it, well, for example, Stephen Greer, Dr. Greer of the Disclosure Project, and we asked him, and it turns out that supposedly government leaders, presidents come in there thinking maybe they'll find out what's going on about UFOs, and guess what happens? They don't do it. Someone yeah. comes over and says, Mr. President, falls apart. Yeah. yes, we can't do this, but I'm the president. That's too bad. Yeah, you're only in here for four or eight years. You're, you're the president, but can you really be trusted? Well, I think in most cases, looking at the situation, no. I'm telling you, the guy I wish I'd had around to ask about this would be Hoover. If anybody knew what was really going on here or had the ability to find out who the decision makers were, it had to be Hoover. So, I mean, if you work back through him, I think you, you're, you're in a position to be able to find out some real information. 
I know that sounds weird, but for how many years? 50 years? J. Edgar Hoover basically, in many ways, was the most powerful man in the country. And, uh, you know, there are some notes about Hoover trying to find out after the Roswell crash. He was look going in there looking for some information as well. There are some documents that have his signature on them. So, um, but, you know, in the end, when you look at the Serpo documentation, you look at the specifics of it, there are, um, there are a lot of contradictions which sort of underscore the idea that this is actually some very intricate disinformation. Or perhaps, Gene, some amount of Serpo is disinformation, but maybe there's a truthful core in there somewhere. I somehow doubt that Steven Spielberg was given access to this information, which then became the foundation of Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Anybody who says that, I think, is really uh, sort of pushing the edge of what is feasible or credible. Well, you know more about Spielberg than a lot of people, I guess largely because you also worked in the motion picture industry and have a lot more information. You know a little bit about where the bodies are buried. A little bit. I know a little bit about uh, uh, Steven Spielberg, and I think that if he actually had access to something, he'd tell somebody. I don't think he'd sit on it, to be honest with you. He's a very wealthy, very powerful man. He doesn't really have anything to fear. I, I think that if he knew something, he'd be behind trying to get it out there. As far as I know, he doesn't. I mean, I don't speak to the man, but um, I'd be willing to guess that he doesn't know anything about this in terms of them having gone to him to say, oh, you know, put some of this information in your movie to try to break this to the public in some kind of a reasonable way. I think that's uh, that's scratching there. I don't I don't think there's any credibility to that. You're not on his call list, unfortunately, huh? No, not really. Oh. <laughs> The Internet is such a democratic medium. If you like something, Gene, you can actually let people know. Did you know that? Wow. Okay. <laughs> Tell me if more, you, my friend. <laughs> well, if you go on iTunes and you do a search for the Paracast page on iTunes on the podcast directory, you'll find that we have some fans, amazingly. There are people who listen to us and like the show and let other people know that they find the Paracast something a little bit beyond the typical paranormal podcast show so if you're listening right now and you like what you hear let other people know go on and uh, post your thoughts about the paracast on itunes podcast directory page for us or if you listen to us through any of the other content aggregators like podcast alley please vote for us we appreciate knowing that you like the show and want other people to hear it as well right we appreciate your reviews we're not soliciting you understand we're just begging <laughs> we're demanding Whatever. If you well, no, you know, it's if hey, listen for what you pay for the show, you can give us a minute of your time and let the world know you like it, or let us know if you don't like it. Even more importantly, because we want to make it better. Because there are some great things coming to the Paracast in the next few weeks. Even more places to hear the show. Ooh. Excellent. Yeah. So give us your feedback. Post on the Paracast page on the podcast directory on iTunes, or use the feedback mechanism or the voting mechanism for whatever podcast aggregator you listen to us through. We'd really appreciate it. This is the Paracast with your hosts, Gene Steinberg and David Bietti. You never know what's going to happen next. You're in the Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietany. And for those tuning in, you got to listen to this entire show to see what went on 
because it is fascinating. We talked yeah. about Project Serpo, which is something that allegedly involves an exchange program with aliens where a dozen people from Earth, a dozen Earth people went to planet Serpo to spend some time. Hang out. Hang out. Enjoy themselves. Watch alien sex practices. That's right. Eat the food. See the sights. Go hunting. I mean, if you start to read the details on this stuff, it sounds like very well-crafted science fiction. So the problem with this is that you start to look at it from that point of view, and yeah, it's credible as a science fiction story, but the thing is, would would an account of another planet and another civilization, wouldn't it appear to be from an outside point of view, just a well-crafted science fiction story. That's where it gets hard, Gene. We're, we're so ingrained, our culture, in the details, the minutiae of the science fiction fairy tale. You know, we're so, this is such a big part of our culture, such a big part of our, uh, of our collective, that when you start to hear these stories, there are so many elements that you can trace to movies. I mean, there's so many aspects of the Serpo disclosures that sound like they came out of any number of very well-known, very successful movies. Where do you draw the line? That, well, certainly Close Encounters it. of the Third Kind. Of course, yeah. the excuse being that Close Encounters was influenced by Serpo and not vice versa. Yeah. But how do you know? But look, for example, in the 1950s, Contactees. The movie mm-hmm. Day the Earth Stood Still influenced mm-hmm. all the contact cases. Sure. Or at least most of them that we knew about. And the other thing that we were mentioning earlier, of course, we had a brief discussion on the interview with Carrie and and Bill about Otis T. Carr. Mm-hmm. I don't know about that either, because there are so many legends that seem to relate to Nikola Tesla. That, for right. example, Otis T. Carr in the 1920s hung out with Tesla. And suddenly in the 1950s, he's trying to build his own spacecraft. And suddenly in 1961, the government says, "Uh uh-uh. But it's also true that Carr vanished from public view around that time for whatever reason. Right. Who knows? So I I have to tell you, well, I've read a lot of um, stuff on Tesla. Margaret Cheney is a writer who's written extensively on Tesla. And I don't have her two seminal books in front of me, but I don't remember his name coming up anywhere. I, I would think that if he played such an important role in Tesla's life, there, there would be something about this somewhere in all of the work about Tesla and all of the writings about Tesla. That was I a point that you kind of raised in the show itself. Yeah. But yeah, I don't I mean, know that it was answered completely. And I, in all fairness to Bill and Carrie, they probably don't know. I think their right. exposure to the Otis T. Carr instance is probably this Ralph Ring, and that they probably aren't that much aware of the source material except for the quotation from a Long John Nebel show. And remember, Long John Nebel was a great entertainer. First and foremost, Long John was an entertainer. And that means, yes, he presented lots of factual information, but he was not above trying to get ratings and pushing a story not because he believed in it, but because other people might or at least they'll listen. Well, I have to tell you the whole Ralph Ring, Otis Carr story. That's uh, that's another show. Having looked at some of the documentation that uh, Bill forwarded to us, it's certainly fascinating. I think that there are some fascinating aspects to this, but I think we need to take a closer look at the stuff that's out there, and we need to have them back on on another show to talk specifically about those two 
gentlemen? I think that's the issue that a lot of this brings about, which is you come on the show, you talk to somebody for an hour and a half, hour and 45 minutes, whatever, and now you have more questions to ask. Oh, yeah. And sometimes you get more questions raised by the answers that are given. And what I'd like to do, by the way, is invite our listeners to help out here in our quest. And we can't do it all alone. And we have a message board system at theparacast.com. And if you have a question for a guest, a suggestion for a guest, any yeah, ideas, yes, absolutely. post your message on there. The only thing you have to do really to, is just register a username. I mean, we don't want all your personal information. It's just so... We know who you are in the sense of you're a real person. You put an email address or something on there so that the few people, and we get a few people who get a little little bit beside themselves. And when they get beside themselves, we say, cool down or goodbye. But So we have to kind of know who you are. So you give yourself a username like any kind of message board system. Go in there and read the stuff. And we've got thousands of messages, a lot of stuff going on. But if you have a question or a comment about one of the shows, a suggestion for guests, or just something we didn't think about because we can't think of everything. Well, David gets close. Okay. Not exactly. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, it's, hey, three heads are better than two heads, and a thousand heads are better than five heads. That's right. And by the way, to show you how great the participation is on this show, we even have Klaatu on there now. We have Klaatu on there? Really? Yeah, Klaatu Barada Nikto. You know, the phrase from the I movie Davis Stood I, Still. How can I forget that? Well, somebody came online, and his name is Klaatu. Now we need Gort. That's right. If anybody's <laughs> looking, by the way, if anybody is looking to be Gort, that name is available. Also, Orthon. Orthon? Yes, you know, one of the people that George Adamski met. Oh, God. And, and soon, oh, I'm not even going to start saying those other names. The, those people from the Pleiades that can't pronounce their own planetary system. Yeah, let's not even go there. Well, they, then they appear on Dean Martin TV show. Oh, God. No, don't do it. Oh. La, 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 la. Change the subject. Don't do this. Okay. You can't do this. No, it's time to end the show. We have to end the show right now because we've just, we've, this is not good. Oh, no. We have to do, I have to tell you something, though. Do you know UFO Magazine is having a 20th anniversary? Really? 20 years? 20 years. Oh. And we've got Vicky and Don Ecker. We've got William and Nancy Burns up next week to talk about it. It's a party on the Paracast. The Paracast with Gene Steinberg and David Bietney is a production of Making the Impossible Incorporated. Join us next week for a new adventure in the Paracast.